G'day, mate. Forty here, back with another invigorating show. We're going to talk about the war in Ukraine. We'll talk about why the Russians like Putin. We'll talk about the legacy of Madeleine Albright. We'll talk about why study history. And uh, it's the third show with my new friend, Matthew. So he's a PhD student at the London School of Economics in History. So, so Matt, uh, let's start off. Uh, what are your thoughts about the ongoing war in Ukraine? Is it entering, coming up uh, on seven weeks now? Well, I just have to say, um, and people who are curious why this is can go back to our previous show, the second show, but I'm not going to detail it again, but I have a personal uh, interest in the uh, in, in the Russian people, The <laughs> that's kind of a bad way of putting it, but I have Russians that I love and care about, so this is not merely abstraction to me, the way some people seem to be treating this as um, some, some kind of football game or some kind of sporting event. Um, let me first say, my first, the first obvious thing is banal, but I think it's important as a throat clearing, also conceptually, not just in terms of morality. It's wrong what Putin has done. It's morally wrong and illegal. Um, in addition to that, there are highly legitimate interests Russia has in uh, in Ukraine, grievances Russia has that are legitimate. Um, for instance, since uh, 2019, Russia has attempted through the suppression, pardon me, uh, Ukraine has attempted the suppression of the use of the Russian language in Ukraine to Ukrainize the population. So essentially to crush and stamp out the Ukrainian identity, probably the Russian identity of, of a significant minority of Ukrainians in pursuit of a homogeneous uh, nation state. These laws violate international law, which provides a right for indigenous uh, minorities to uh, use their language in, in, in commercial life and educational spheres and so on. And all of this is, is now prohibited except in very limited circumstances. Um, and this is what Putin means by genocide. He's exaggerating. He's lying, you could say. But he, this is what he's referring to. It's a real phenomenon and a concerning phenomenon, namely trying to stamp out the heritage and identity and stories, if you will, of this Russian-Ukrainian minority. Um, and, of course, we've heard a lot about NATO uh, NATO membership, and I agree with those concerns. And I think the analogy to the United States is is apt that we would be concerned if a Russian military alliance were on our border. Um, and uh, furthermore, um, this neo-Nazi element in Ukraine, a small minority, but a vicious minority, and one that has been empowered by the state and by pro-Western forces since the Maidan revolution. Um, these people have committed terrorism against Russians and people who are pro-Russia most uh, notably, a 2014 incident where dozens were burned alive in Mariupol, and um, they were not um, brought to justice by the government because the government has used these people as kind of cannon fodder against Russia. Obviously, most Ukrainians are not neo-Nazis, overwhelming majority are not. But this small minority is a, cons- is a, is a security risk to people who are pro-Russia or Russian in Ukraine. So I think those are examples of legitimate interest Russia has, and hopefully those could be part of a peace agreement. Um, obviously, any revanchism which Putin has talked about is completely illegitimate and immoral and doesn't belong in the 21st century. I'm not excusing the invasion. The invasion was illegal, a crime. There was, I think, revanchism as part of the motivation, but there also were legitimate interests. And that's important because um, satisfying those interests could lead to a peace agreement. And that's what I hope we're going to see in the coming weeks and days. 
Now, why do you think that Putin invaded? It wasn't to maintain the linguistic integrity of uh, oppressed Russians in, in Ukraine. Uh, well, I think it's, I, I don't know why he invaded. I think there are many motives he stated, and we have to look at those motives. He talked of, um, he spoke of revanchism. We've mentioned that. That's not a legitimate motive, obviously. But he also spoke of what he calls genocide. And that is what I described, the suppression of the linguistic rights of Russian minority and Ukraine, a human rights violation, an attempt to basically wipe them out, not to kill them, of course, but to um, assimilate them into Ukrainian identity. Okay, wipe out their identity. Um, so I think he is angry about that because he sees that as an attempt to shrink the Russian sphere of influence and to shrink the tradition, the, to shrink the traditional like gross realm of Russia. You know, so I think he 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 is concerned about that and concerned. But I think we should just look at what he says. He talks about revanchism. We reject this, and he needs to know that this is not going to happen. Um, but he also talked of this denazification thing and this genocide thing, and I think we should do what we should have done with the Osama bin Laden, frankly, before September 11th and read what he's saying and see if there's any way we can adjust our behavior and prevent, and in this case, Ukraine can adjust its behavior to prevent further fatalities. I think many of these grievances are legitimate and serious, along with the war in the Donbass with NATO membership and, again, could serve as part of a peace agreement. So, so... You make Putin sound a lot more reasonable than he's being portrayed in the Western news media. Well, but he is a revanchist too. He wrote an article, I can't remember whether this is 2020 or 2019, uh, or even 2021, I can't remember the year, but he wrote an article, very odd for a head of state, I don't know if you're familiar with this, Luke, but on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, where he's essentially engaged in revanchism and even so far to say at one point that Ukrainian sovereignty is only possible the exercise of it with in partnership with Russia. So I think he does have revanchist and if you will like imperialistic aims as reg he wants Ukraine to be a kind of Belarus, right? So I don't think it's just these two things, but I think there can be multiple causes. There can be rational causes as there are and there can be imperialistic causes. So I think it's a combination of those most likely just based on what he said and also based on, um, you know, Russian public opinion. Russian public opinion is was is very exercised over um, what happened in Mariupol in 2014, for example. This instance I referred to burning alive of people by these neo-Nazis. They're also concerned about the Ukrainization, Ukrainization, I don't know how the hell you'd say it in English, um, of, of uh, ethnic minorities there. So I think he is concerned about all of this. He's concerned about the legitimate things and the illegitimate things. And the hope I have is that legitimate concerns he has could be satisfied as part of a peace agreement. Of course, the peace agreement would have to also respect, uh, give Ukrainians some security assurances this won't happen again. I'm not blind to that concern. So you seem to look at this invasion primarily in moral terms. Is that fair? Um, well, I, I think there's two dimensions to it. I think there's the moral terms, which I... I'm sympathetic to what people are saying in this regard, kind of normy discourse about these suffering Ukrainians. And then I think there's a realism, uh, a question of political realism, also a question of rationalistic motivations, of motivations that could be uh, could be satisfied as part of a peace agreement. So I would say I have the moralistic view, but I also want peace. And I think the current discourse is highly destructive insofar as it's, 
I'm kind of contradicting myself a bit, but the discourse in some ways is so moralistic. Putin is Hitler, right? Yes. Common media trope. That this is actually an impediment to peace. I think Biden, President Biden, has not been productive in this. And I'm disappointed, actually, because on foreign policy, at least, he seemed to me so far to be a less kind of moralistic, more balanced character. Now he's like out of control, essentially. I mean, he's talking about regime change and so on. I think the French President Macron and also Erdogan of Turkey have provided much more constructive diplomatic roles in trying to bring about a peaceful solution. And I think moralizing can get in the way of that because diplomacy involves respect. Diplomacy involves pragmatism. You can't be highly moralistic and be an effective diplomat. And, and there's no rational reason to believe that if there was a regime change in Russia, that the new regime would be more pro-Western and more peaceful. The, well, the I mean, geopolitics you know, of the situation uh, lends itself to to a Russia that has serious conflicts mm-hmm. of interest with, with the West and, and with uh, Ukraine and, and with many of its neighbors. Well, you have to understand, too, the 1990s was the era in which Russia had the most pro-Western presidents basically handed over their economic policy to Western economic ideologies and with privatization schemes. Poverty peaked around 40% at the end of the 1990s. GDP halved. This was a much less prosperous Russia. I'm not talking about the Soviet Union because that's obviously bigger. I'm talking about just the land of the Russian Federation. Much less prosperous in the late 1990s than under uh, communism in the late 80s. And also much, much, much less prosperous than under Putin in the mid to late 2000s. And I think that segues into one question, uh, into in, in two issues. Why do the Russians not like America? They don't dislike Americans. Why, do, why are they skeptical of the United States? And why is Putin relatively popular? I don't know how popular he is now. I think the war probably has damaged his popularity because it's obviously not going according to plan. But why has Putin been a popular figure? And the reason for that is... <laughs> Very simple. I mean, the country is much more prosperous, has much less crime, and has much more of a sense of identity and pride now than it did when he started. So that's why. And the reason for the skepticism of the West, in addition to history of the Cold War and so on, historical grievances related to World War II, how they don't feel as if they've been given credit and so on. Well, the biggest reason for um, contemporary skepticism of the United States is I think the 1990s being such a disaster through privatization schemes endorsed and developed by Western institutions, Western economists, and so on. One thing I found surprising is how the Biden administration has had no interest in achieving a a peace deal. They could have Mm -hmm. sent a letter to Putin before the invasion stated saying that that there was no intention that the guarantee that Ukraine would not enter NATO then once the invasion started, they never talk about trying to achieve a peace deal. They're not doing anything to achieve a peace deal. They want to see Russia bleed. So it's, it's, it's realism, but it's very risky. It's very risky realism because you, you're multiplying the chances of some kind of nuclear cataclysm. Yes. So I think the moral case for sanctions is profoundly weak. Even if you have a moral case for, let's help the Ukrainians. I agree, let's help these refugees and so on and, the, and help the country rebuild and, you know, help, help them now and all, all kinds of things. But 
the case for um, sanctions I find very weak because it's collective punishment. I suspect, I don't know, because Russia has taken it such a totalitarian turn since this war began that we can't really know. But I strongly suspect most Russians are skeptical of this war. I don't know, but that's my suspicion. Um, and so far as there, is, there haven't been credible polls done and probably aren't permitted in Russia right now, given the laws and so on, with going to jail if you oppose the war. But um, you're punishing people who, have, who oppose this, first of all, so it's collective punishment. You're punishing people who are completely innocent or anti-war. Even if you say someone's guilty, if they support the war, well, you're punishing tons of innocent people because there are a lot of them are against it. And second of all, they're not going to overthrow Putin. They're um, patriotic people. Um, Russians are. They're not going to overthrow the head of state if they dislike him uh, to placate the West, who they believe hate them. And rightfully so. I mean, look at how they're being treated, Russians. Look at how they're being canceled. You can say it, but Putin was right in that most recent speech about the canceling of Russians. I'm no Putin supporter. I, I would be happy if uh, he decided to retire tomorrow, as it were. He's not going to, but I'd be happy. But he was right about that. There is deep animus. And there's also the Colbert show, right? The Colbert show, the audience was like, you know, kind of trained animals almost in their reactions to things, it seems to me. The Colbert audience was like cheering for uh, what they believed to be bread lines in Russia. There aren't bread lines in Russia, actually, but they thought there were, Colbert said there were, and they were like clapping, you know? That's Stephen Colbert. Which show are you talking about? Stephen Colbert, yeah. It was kind of the king of the normies at this point, you know. Yes, uh, uh, but which show in particular are you talking about? Well, his um, his night show, right? Oh, you're talking about every night. Every yeah. Night. Okay. I, like I, he I told his he told his audience, Russians are struggling economically and are in bread lines, and they were like, "Yay!" You know, like kind of weird shit lib sadism. You know what I'm talking about? Right. Yes. Yeah. So I, Russians. Russians are even who are anti-Putin are trying to, um, to assist uh, Western policy of overthrowing their leader um, on behalf of a West that hates them, that they perceive as hating them. And there's plenty of truth to that perception, too. And they perceived as having stabbed them in the back many times over the decades, particularly the 1990s. You know, there, there was a thought that uh, Russia would be integrated into Europe, perhaps. Russia would be integrated into NATO, and that if Russia was not integrated into NATO, NATO would not expand. And also there was a thought that if we liberalize, meaning we, not me, but Russia, um, if we liberalize our economy, our markets, and our culture, and our politics, it'll bring prosperity. And all these promises from the West seem to have failed, you know? So there's a lot of skepticism toward the West and Russia, and I think quite rightly. And uh, where is Turkey in all this? Where, where do their interests lie? Well, uh, I just drew the Richard Spencer connection, which is rather humorous. Um, so it's good that Richard Spencer didn't um, take over, didn't become the dictator of the United States and commit genocide against them because they are committing, they are engaged in a constructive role. They're, I think they're the chief, along with the French, they're playing the chief negotiating role right now. Because Turkey has been, <laughs> I, I haven't heard Israel, Israel's involved to some extent, but I think Turkey has, has a more substantive relationship with Russia and um, with Russia and Ukraine than Israel does. 
what what's in Turkey's best interest though is a weaker Russia in Turkey's interest uh, are they incentivized to to crush Russia or what's in their interest I think Turkey uh, views both nations as important trading partners as nations that are not antagonistic to it Turkey under Erdogan especially views its sphere of influence as the Middle East Turkey is the only Middle Eastern country with the large powerful economy, I believe top 20 in the world, that is not relying on uh, oil, right? So obviously, Saudi Arabia, I believe, is top 20 economy in the world, but they're heavily <laughs> reliant on petroleum. So Turkey is able to flex itself as a Muslim country without simply being a product of one you know, particular industry, right? Um, it has an imperial history, yet it also has a modernizing thrust. So I see Turkey as wanting um as wanting to be kind of the leader of the middle east especially under erdogan where they've kind of looked backward looked back toward the middle east rather than looking at europe where they're kind of torn between these two poles of, of, of identity are we european are we middle eastern or whatever but i think right now the trend is especially under erdogan to conceive of themselves as a near eastern nation and probably the leader of the near eastern world the only country with a credible economy not totally based on petroleum a powerful military and so on and I think they would see their prestige enhanced by broken a peace agreement. Moreover, I think they see both nations as non-antagonistic, as <laughs> not in their in their desired sphere of influence, right? So they they they'd be happy for peace to break out, and it would boost their Erdogan's prestige tremendously if he played a role in this. Today, I believe they were diplomats meeting, and I don't know if it was Ankara or Istanbul, but they were meeting in Turkey uh, from both ends. So and. What do you think about Turkey joining the European Union? That they're a member of NATO already, but mm -hmm. uh, what about Turkey joining? I don't the think Union? the EU bit is dead. I think under Erdogan, they have moved toward. They're not an Islamic country, but they're a Muslim country. If you understand mm -hmm. my difference, they're yeah. not. They're never going to ban drinking. They're never going to ban wearing sexy clothes if you're a woman. They're never going to ban brothels even right they have legal prostitution in turkey they're never going to ban um bikini like they're not going to become islamic in this sense but they're there's kind of a normative muslim identity that could have a secular valence and could have a religious valence but is there with turks in general at least in the majority under erdogan so you may be secular but you still have a sense of yourself as muslim as a muslim heritage of having certain Eastern sensibilities, even if you may not be super religious, but you don't like the idea of insulting Islam in the public square, right? For example. Um, so you maybe live and let live when it comes to people's personal decisions, but you know, you don't want to see the denigration of religious symbols in the public sense. And you see yourself as part of Ottoman Turkish civilization. So um, I think, um, you know, um, the, the EU bid is unlikely. I don't think they want that even at this point. I think there has been for a century kind of a struggle. Are we a Middle Eastern country? Are we a European country? And I think in the large majority, they see themselves as a modernizing, powerful Middle Eastern country, Near Eastern country. That's how I, how I see Turkey right now. Everyone has changed the country quite a bit, you know. Okay. What do you want to say about the death of Madeleine Albright and the legacy of Clinton's foreign policy? Well, I think Albright um, represents an era 
in which liberals, kind of baby boomer liberals who grew up opposing uh, the war and loathing the military even in many cases. Bill Clinton, in, his, in a 1969 letter to his draft board, spoke of his loathing for the military. Um, actually, to his ROTC, um, uh, to an ROTC unit he had applied to be in at the University of Arkansas. He said, I can't do this because I despise the military. These anti-war, not just anti-war, but anti-military sentiments were very common in the baby boomer generation. However, and, and these policies persisted, albeit in diluted form. They weren't like openly anti-military and so on. But, you know, Jimmy Carter published, uh, pardon me, pardoned, um, gave a broad amnesty to draft, um, to, to, to draft dodgers, for instance. Um, throughout the 1980s, many Democratic governors prevented uh, U.S. military training drills done by the American administration from occurring uh, in their territory, Democratic governors did. There was a skepticism of the military and war and so on. Uh, the Persian Gulf War of 1991, I think, really undermined this, this war skepticism that had emerged in Vietnam on the left because it seemed as if it was quite justified. It was naked aggression and that it had occurred, uh, meaning Iraq invading Kuwait, and that the war, the actual course of the war, had been relatively clean, namely the coalition expelling Saddam Hussein from Kuwait. So I think, you know, you've got a lot more Democrats voting against this war. Joe Biden voted against this war, for example, uh, the first Gulf War. Um, you had a lot more Democrats voting against the first Gulf War than the second Gulf War, even though the second was obviously unjustified, like insanity, you know, like obvious aggression, you know, and the first Gulf War had a pretty clear justification where there was aggression against an ally, right? So I think the first Gulf War really knocked, I think even George Herbert Walker Bush said, we licked the Vietnam syndrome. And then the Clinton administration kind of finished off anti-war sensibilities in the left uh, through its, its extraordinary record of uh, just the scope of the interventions they engaged in was extraordinary from the Balkans um, um, to Somalia um, and, and bombing, you know, uh, bombing campaigns of, of in Sudan and so on. I think that the foreign policy, the aggressive foreign policy, and kind of this humanitarian liberal foreign policy, if you will, this hawkish humanitarianism uh, that Albright represented and Clinton represented um, meant the end of any kind of anti-war left, the residual anti-war left that had been so powerful in the 19th, in the Vietnam era, um, and even persisted, as I say, in the 80s and through even the, the large skepticism of the first Gulf War. But by the time of the Iraq War, the second Iraq War in 2000, I can't remember where the vote was, 2000, I think the vote was 2002, the vote for the resolution. Um, but I'm not, maybe 2003 was the vote, I'm not sure. But by this time, um, I think the anti-war left had been effectively liquidated thanks to Albright and her co-ideologues. So she represents, in my view, a kind of a kind of neocon light foreign policy where America aggressively intervenes on behalf of humanitarian causes around the world militarily. Yeah, yeah. It, it's from a, from a realist perspective, it just seems so weird that uh, Albright and the Clinton administration would be very proud that they're militarily intervening all over the world in things that are not in America's best interests. You know, they're, they're right. intervening for these humanitarian ideals rather than for the country's 
best interests. It, it they see it as altruistic, and and I see it as bad policy. And the strangest thing is, um, again, there was a deep skepticism of the war, and not just war, but the military as well among Democrats for for decades, and it effectively ended with the Clinton administration, the anti-war left. It, it, there was a brief kind of rekindling of it in the late 2000s, uh, during, you know, mid to late 2000s, because the Iraq war was so patently unjustified. I don't even think Clinton would have done the, the second Iraq war. It's insanity. Like, I mean, <laughs> there was no ongoing humanitarian crisis. Of course, Saddam Hussein was a monster who gassed Kurds and so on and had invaded neighbor. But this was many years ago, right? I mean, you can't just inv- you can't just bomb a country because the leader did terrible things, you know, a decade and a half ago. It doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, there was no, it was just aggression, right? The second Gulf War. And the fact that, but the fact that you had large majorities voting for it and so many Democrats voting for it shows, I think, that the anti-war left was destroyed by then. Because the, the justification for this war was so weak. Whereas the first Gulf War actually probably was the most justified war the United States has had since World War II, where you just cleanly have aggression against an, a, 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 against an ally and you expel the aggressor, and it's not particularly bloody and so on. Um, but even with this, where you had very large numbers of Democrats running against it, I think the vote was 52 to 48 for the first Gulf War. Let me look it up. And Joseph Biden voted against the first Gulf War. I voted for the second, which is just bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, and if you vote for one of those, you vote for the first. Second one's just aggression. Yeah, and, and the the overwhelming victory that the American forces had and the overwhelming popularity that H.W. Bush got from it uh, taught Democrats a lesson so that they then were very eager not to not to be skeptical when the Iraq invasion came along 12 years later. Okay, so and, it was, I'm just looking up the vote. It was 52 to, um, let me see this. Oh, what was the number? It looks like 52 to 47. All right, so very close though. And again, the justification was much more compelling and still very, very strong Democratic dissent. You still had this anti-war um, Democratic sentiment. And it's, it, I think the Gulf War kills it and Clinton, um, you know, stomps on the corpse, you know. Now, you briefly mentioned uh, chemical warfare, Saddam Hussein, gas the Kurds. I don't get why so many people think that uh, chemical warfare, such as gassing, is a worse way to kill people than shooting them. I really don't see the difference. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that the reason for this, I'm, and I'm, I'm no expert whatever um, on, on, on this matter. I have no, I actually, I don't really know why it's so particular sense. So first of all, the, the historic memory of the use of chemical weapons in the field of battle in the first world war involving mass asphyxiation, I think has had a kind of salient effect in terms of people's historical memory. I also think that <laughs> there's even a sense that it's unchivalrous. You're just indiscriminately releasing gas and you're killing soldiers in terms of, of a weapon of war, right? Mm-hmm. In terms of a weapon of killing civilians, I think it's, it's the reason it's so sinister is it's, <laughs> it's quite efficient and also difficult, to tr- much more difficult to track than say, like like the, the perpetrators and say, um, if you send out a squad, a killing squad to shoot people, you know. But okay. I, yeah, I actually wondered about this too, though. I don't really know why it's considered so, so much worse than you know, like barrel bombs, right? Why? 
Right. It's like a red line. It's supposed to be a red line. You know, if if they use chemical weapons as opposed to using machine guns. So. so Right. I mean, like, 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 Al-Assad in in Syria has killed far more people with with civilians with bombs and starvation blockades in Aleppo than um, he has with with chemical weapons. So it is is strange. Yeah. Fewer than one percent of Syrians have been killed by chemical weapons. Right. Yeah. You know, other means of killing them. So, uh, yeah, I don't get why chemical weapons red line. It just doesn't hold up rationally. Uh, b- before the show, you mentioned something about the history of the Russian Federation, so post-Soviet Union. Was there anything you wanted to talk about with regard to the history of the Russian Federation? Well, I, I, I mean, it's it's pretty vast history, but in what respect? You mean, like, in terms of the 1990s? You talked about, we can talk about why Putin is popular and history of Russian mm-hmm. Federation. So, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the history I would just point to without getting into into too uh, pedantic of detail is simply just that shock therapy, as it were, privatization, the creation of the oligarch, development of capitalistic institutions led to social chaos and fear and crime and um, inefficiency. That The Soviet system actually worked much better in the 90s, if you just compare it and any macroeconomic indicator in the 1980s, the Soviet system was more prosperous, more efficient, and so on than the um, uh, than the um, kind of capitalistic, if you will, or, or corporatist Russian Federation model in the 1990s. So I think that this historical memory is important because it articulates why there is a skepticism of Western solutions and also why there's some nostalgia for the Soviet Union. I spoke to last time I was in Russia to a physician um, who said all the institutions, even now she's talking about all the institutions ran, run better now compared to, um, compared to um, the Russian, compared to, pardon me, um, all, sorry, all the institutions ran better in the Soviet days compared to now. Um, so I think it also explains why Putin's more um, corporatist model, if you will, kind of authoritarian capitalism where the oligarchs, are in some sense enmeshed with him, but subservient to him, you know, um, has <laughs> has some appeal to Russians. First of all, his economic, pro- his just the country right now is much more prosperous than it was before he started, as I mentioned. Poverty is way lower. It's a fraction of what it was. Crime is way lower and so on. Um, but secondly, I think that the kind of uh, wild free market capitalism of the 1990s and privatization sort of, uh, there's a sense that this is anarchic in Russia. And therefore, the idea that we have one national policy, yeah, we have rich people, these rich corrupt people, people know they're corrupt, obviously, um, who are engaged in capitalism in a technical sense, at least, um, these oligarchs. But nevertheless, there's one broad policy, uh, one broad economic policy determined by Putin. I think this authoritarianism is attractive to people because they see unregulated capitalism is in the 1990s is anarchic and dangerous, you know, and destabilizing. And there's a lot of reasons they believe that if you look at simple um, statistics like GDP shrinking so much in the 90s, poverty skyrocketing, and so on. Unemployment, you know. You there, Luke? Luke? Can't hear you. Yeah, sorry about that. 
Oh, we are the room or something. Yeah, <laughs> no, sorry. Sorry, I don't know what happened there, but uh well, you're good, bro. You okay. So time. we're we're back. So why why do you think Russians are the least successful white people in the world? Um, well I wouldn't say they are. I'd say um Well they're they're the poorest. Yeah. They're the poorest white no. people in the world. Well, Ukrainians were poor before the war. Moldovans were poor. Um plenty of Eastern European countries were poorer than Russia before the war. So I question I question the, the predicate of the the, the premise of the question. Okay, so why are Eastern European and Russian countries so poor? Well, ask ask the National Justice Party. I mean, they they're they're neo Nazis, so maybe they believe in that these are not white people at all. That they're untermenschen. Uh, no, that's not widely held. So why why Eastern Europeans and Russians? Why do you think? I, I so honestly, poor? I think institutions matter more than um, you know these these people on the alt right say. Oh, white people be prosperous. I mean, this is not true empirically, right? I mean, there are plenty of, of so-called white countries in Eastern Europe that are quite poor. Ukraine, Moldova being remarkably poor, um, poorer than many um, sub-Saharan Africa, the multiple countries in sub-Saharan Africa on a per capita basis, not Russia, but uh, Moldova and Ukraine. Um, so I don't believe it's racially deterministic. Uh, well, I don't, think that, I just don't think that's empirically supported. It's not some political correctness thing. I don't think it's true. Um, I think institutions matter tremendously and liberal democratic institutions are the best for producing wealth. So a pretty banal answer, but I think that's what the evidence supports. Um, incidentally, uh, Russians are, they're about 25, they have about three quarters of the per capita GDP of Ukrainians. Uh, per capita basis, I think you're incorrect about that. Well, that's just what I looked up. So, I mean, those are the, those are the figures, uh, on a per capita basis, uh, Russians are capita GDP by Europe. I, I guarantee Ukraine is poorer than. than um, no, I mean you're looking at. Are you looking at PPP or nominal GDP? I just looked up on Wikipedia. So uh, okay, they, they well, list per capita GDP in Ukraine as uh, over fourteen thousand. In in Russia, it's listed as six as eleven thousand. Okay, well, that's not nominal. That's PPP, I think you're looking at, because I'm looking at Wikipedia, too. I just sent it to you. Like, Ukraine is definitely poorer than Russia, even before, a, the, before the war. Even on Look a per capita basis? You're gonna yes, yes. I mean, I'm looking at IMF, UN World Bank, that this Wikipedia link has. You may be looking at PPP, but that takes into account, like, the price of goods in a country. So if a country... Uh -huh. that, okay, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's uh, that may be true. I'm talking about like wealth of people. Um, okay. But if you're talking about domestic, so the problem with PPP, I don't like PPP as an indicator um, because, like, simply, but I think in a globalized economy, the wealth people have is more important than how much they can get for their wealth at the local market. You know, yeah. I think PPP was more relevant 70 years ago. But if you look at just per capita GDP, Russia is much higher than you're Ukraine. Right. Russia's, yeah. Yeah, you can see this, but PPP may be, I haven't looked at the PPP data, but you know, it, I mean, it, it, if you're Russian and you're buying, if you're buying a Netflix subscription or you're buying something from Amazon, you know, we're a very globalized economy. Obviously the fact that the wages are a lot higher than Ukraine or multiple, you know, that's going to be relevant, right? Right. On the yeah. other hand, if you live in a poor, if you live in a, 
poor country with low prices. I mean, subjectively, it may feel like you you have more money, you know. So why why is the alt right so in love with with Putin? My my. I have some theories. One theory is that it just shows how out of touch with reality uh, people are if, if they think that, that Putin is a savior of the West or a defender of Christianity. Uh, second, yeah. it, it shows people are so alienated from their own country that anyone who's the enemy of their country is very likely a good person. It's like, I hate America. Putin hates America. There are many, there are many humorous friend. parts of this. So. Yeah. Go ahead. One humorous thoughts? part of it is that Mike Enoch and Eric Stryker, I mean, I don't know, but I think Stryker too, um, definitely Enoch has made this point, are now emphatically saying Chechens are white. And what's funny about that, are they white? I, I mean, I don't really care what, what the answer to the question is. Sure, they're light-skinned. But what's funny about that is in Russia, racists refer to Caucasians, meaning people from the, the Caucasus, not like white. Right. People refer to Caucasians as blacks, like in Russia. So that is like what racists in Russia call, not people in general, sorry, racists in Russia call Caucasians blacks. That's like the slur for them. Yeah. So it's just rather humorous that they're anachronistically applying their own categories of ethnicity and race to Russia. It's a vastly different society than the United States. Another thing that's humorous is that Putin is not a racist. Um, he, may, he sees Russians ethnic Russians as, at least not a public race. I don't know what he believes. I don't care particularly. But his public statements, he does not engage in race hatred. I mean, here's what he says, essentially. He conceives of Russia as a multi-ethnic empire. He conceives as Russians as the founding and, in some sense, most important ethnic group. You could say that's racist, I suppose. But he also believes that many different ethnic groups can become citizens of Russia which is a very different conception, a more universal conception, not quite like the United States, but it's a much more universalist conception of what it means to be Russian than what it means to be Polish, for example, right? I mean, there is a sense in which you can become Russian. You can, and immigration policy is quite liberal as well to Russia. Um, you can be part of the Russian empire, I think he sees it, you know? Um, so he's not a racist. He doesn't attack, he doesn't attack Muslims. There's a large Muslim minority never doesn't attack them. He enforces hate speech laws, actually, um, against people who demean Muslims or Caucasians or whatever. He has invested, after a very bloody civil war in Chechnya, he's invested disproportionately in rebuilding Grozny, which now looks like Houston. I mean, if you look at pictures of Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, it looks a little Dubai, but it kind of evokes too. And, um, you know, um, he also has reaffirmed uh, a core identity of Russia as being anti-Nazi, anti-fascist, as having defeated the Nazis, playing the chief role in defeating the Nazis. So he would essentially be criminalizing people like Nick Fuentes and um, and uh, Mike Enoch. That's strange. He'd actually go to jail for publicly espousing these views, right? The yeah. only thing where he is, I guess, where he sort of lines up with the far right would be the homosexuality issue, right? That is actually, if you're saying, oh, I'm so obsessed with homosexuality, I want to go after them. But I guess, yeah, okay, he he has made life difficult for homosexuals in Russia, and he's not sympathetic to LGBT. That is true. But the other stuff is just um, projection and wishful thinking. Because, again, he, he's not a um, white nationalist or racist. Um, actually, it was a fascinating quote. I don't really know if he sees himself as 
white. In some sense, I don't even think he sees himself as white. There was an interesting quote from the Washington Post an, an, a, 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 that was reporting on an interview he did with um, uh, a discussion he had with John Kerry. And he pointed to his skin, his white skin, Putin. And he said, um, you I'm like you, like you Americans or you Europeans because of this, but I'm different. Russians are different. So, I mean, obviously he sees himself as white skin, but I don't think he sees himself as European, you know? So I th- this is all projection and anachronism and misunderstanding. I mean, these people would be imprisoned by Putin. I mean, not necessarily imprisoned, but they would certainly be censored, you know? Far more than the woke people are censoring them here, hilariously. Like Joe Biden is, not, is going much easier on Mike Enoch than Putin goes on Russian neo-Nazis. Way easier, you know? That's, a, that's a, quite an irony. Like global homo, as they call it, right? Not my term, their term, um, is way easier on them, is way more respectful of their rights than Putin would be. Because Putin, Putin, look, Putin smart, has a multi-ethnic, multi-religious empire, and he, he understands that demeaning sectors of the population is not an effective strategy. He's not the head of state of Poland. He's the head of state of the Russian Federation, which has all these ethnic groups and religions. I mean, you have Tartars, Muslim. You have Caucasians, mostly Muslim. You have, you know, Koreans in the Far East. You have so many different ethnic groups. You have immigrants from Central Asia who are, who are mostly Muslim, Kazakhs, Kazakhs, et cetera. Like, you cannot, and they have a pretty, they also have a very liberal immigration policy. Um, again, I think because of their sense of themselves as um, an, an empire, not an ethnostate, you know? So I've been surprised by this war in in many ways. One, I've been surprised at how ineffective the Russian armed forces have been. Two, I've been surprised at how effective the Ukrainians have been in fighting up for themselves. Three, I think more than anything, I am shocked at the relative unanimity in the West and how the West has come together to impose sanctions and to to not get split off because they have such tremendous... Europe, uh, Germany, countries in Europe have such tremendous energy needs they desperately need russian energy mm-hmm. and yet they have largely stood united against russia which is which has shocked me like nato was a moribund institution until a couple of months ago and now suddenly the west and nato seem to be relatively united uh there's there's uh, much less gratuitous hatred on social media. I think Russian trolls mm-hmm. have, have probably been banned or, or dialed back. So there's more unanimity in the West. There's less gratuitous hatred. The West is a much more serious place. There's less interest or what emphasis nonsense, on, on yeah. wokeism. Uh, what do you think? Anything there Just you want to talk about? Kind, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's there's a part I'm worried about. There's a lot I'm worried about right now. And there's some things that are good collateral consequences. So I'll start with the bad and then I'm with the good. When I'm, the first bad thing I'm worried about is um, I see on this Ukraine thing a kind of new <laughs> attempt to coerce consent where people who have dissident views on, like I have, for example, on, well, Russia has rational interests at stake here are equated with apologizing for the whole invasion, justifying the killing, the refugee crisis, and all of it, which I'm not, and most people are not. I mean, there's some kooks who do, as we mentioned, with the alt-right, but very few people actually are justifying this. And yet there is a 
lot of pressure to conform to a very hardline stance. So I think that's wrong for a free speech perspective. I also see a lot of Russophobia, a lot of negative kind of ethnic xenophobic prejudice against Russians, which we talked about before. I'm very concerned about that. I'm also concerned that this equation of Putin to Hitler and he's so bad is a uh, barrier to peace because if he is Hitler, you fight Hitler, right? You don't make peace with Hitler. You don't. We've read history. People who've read history know that. So this, I worry, this level of rhetoric is instilling in Western leaders and so on a, a, an unwillingness to negotiate because he's Hitler, so he, he has his aims are conquest and subjugation. Therefore, we we fight uh, to the death. But you know, he very <laughs> he very likely does have some rational aims here, as I discussed. And we should at least give it a chance. If you if you had a um, so suppose it doesn't work. If there was if you knew you were dying of cancer, there's a thirty percent uh, chance that some experimental procedure would cure it. Of course, that's that's a relevant consideration. You take that thirty percent chance. Um, we should take a chance here and make peace. And I feel like the current environment that you've referred to is a barrier to that. All that being said, one happy collateral consequence of this is that woke has been marginalized. Like I see less white man bad stuff. I see less kind of extreme, you know, ideologies being thrown around um, and kind of a focus on more substantive issues. So that that is good, but there's a lot to be concerned about too. I would much rather have a, a revival of lib- the kind of liberalism we had 11 years ago, Luke, as opposed to a new kind of um, highly if you will, regulated discourse that isn't about woke concerns, isn't about this group of people are bad because of their ancestors, which is kind of what woke's about. Like, isn't about that stuff. Or like weird, <laughs> like cultural appropriation, just things that are totally fake, um, ridiculousness. So there's less of that, which is good. But I, I see us as moving toward an, another paradigm of highly ordered and regulated discourse too. And I see that as bad. I want to go back to a, kind of freewheeling liberalism that we had, Luke, not too long ago. Well, I think from the perspective of most Westerners who, who pay attention, the enemy has come clearly into sight, particularly with, with Putin uh, talking about the use of nuclear weapons. When the, the enemy comes clearly into sight and using the friend-enemy distinction in the Schmittian sense that the enemy is someone who is existentially a threat to kill you, the enemy comes into sight. And so that leads you to unite with your group uh, and to to be prepared to take on the enemy. And so the unity that we're seeing and the, the strength and the cohesion, the of course, the flip side of this is going to be to castigate anyone who does not fall in line. So mm-hmm. you can't have unity and... Uh, you know, openness to free speech and free expression. Like each each one takes takes a toll on the other. The more free speech and diverse opinions you have, the less unity you're going to have. The more unity you have, the less realm you have for free speech. Quite right. Um, but I'm concerned about the intensity of this. I want to return to a liberal dynamic, as unorganized as that may be. That is what I think is is more conducive to innovation. And an, a dynamic and interesting society, as opposed to this highly regulated discourse. I also just reject the premise that uh, Putin is on the verge of attacking former Warsaw Pact states. I think that's quite absurd. If you look at um, the interest he has in Ukraine and the revanchism he has, right, the the idea that Ukraine is 
in Kiev especially, and, you know, but also parts of other parts of Ukraine, is the Kiev, you know, being the cradle of Russian civilization, in his view. Um, this doesn't apply to Warsaw, right? Or Lithuania, or Estonia. So I, I really don't, I think this is just absurdly unlikely, the idea that he would extend any threat to uh, former Warsaw Pact states. I don't think he has any interest in that. I think he's a Russian... He views Russia. He views Russia as the empire. He doesn't view. He isn't pining for a restoration of the Soviet Union and the and the Bloc states, you know, as well. Uh, there's an interesting character with the National Justice Party named Charles Bausman, editor of Russia Insider, and uh, the the uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center did a long essay on him that. Uh, He's he's part of this network of extreme far right websites that operate primarily in the United States, and uh, he's a pro Kremlin propagandist, and he's pretty pretty close with the National Justice Party, promoting the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Mm-hmm. He seems to be on board with uh, Mike Enoch and Eric Stryker. Uh, what do you think about this Charles Bausman character? It's a strange thing because. Look, we know from well, I think the Russiagate stuff has been tremendously exaggerated. We do know that the kind of Duganist ideology um, promoted by networks like RT uh, is to enable extremes in the United States that create social division and undermine our politics, right? Yeah. So that's why Russia supported not Russian society, I mean, but the, that's why RT gave voice to the Ron Paul movement, right? That's why RT gave a platform to the alt-right, and that's why RT gave a platform to, like, far-left communist types, and also, like, Black Lives Matter, Sean King. These people were promoted not by RT, but by uh, Russia. I'm not sure about Sean King specifically, but Black Lives Matter personalities were. Their interest is um, promoting extreme ideologies that undermine American cohesion. That's their interest. Um, so uh, in terms of, of Enoch and Stryker, I think that is probably, if, they, if there is any connection, that is probably the basis of it, that they see them as, if they, to the extent they become you know, a mainstream pull, as undermining the United States, right? And it's not very strange to understand why. I mean, they promote racial hatred against so many people in the country. They demean the country regularly. Um, I think that if Russia is through some backdoor promoting these people, they're making a mistake because they're not going to go anywhere, right? The Groypers may be a better target. In terms of Bausman, we're speculating. Uh, One of two things is true. He's he's either wants to be a Russian asset or he is, right? Uh, If he is an asset, if he is an asset, he is um, being used to undermine the United States. He isn't being used to promote neo-Nazism because Russia likes it. I mean, Russia lost tens of millions of people in World War II. They don't like Nazis. Nazis are banned there. So it's not as if Russia wants to promote Nazism as an ideology. It's that they want to promote stuff that undermines America. So if uh, this should be investigated, the NJP should answer questions about it. Now, is this guy just somebody who lived in Russia for a few years and then likes this extreme politics? I don't know. But he, he has a website called Russia Insider. Are there Russians funding that? And then you have to ask the question, why would they fund this when Nazism is illegal in Russia, right? And when... Well, As all Russians know, as all Russians know, the Nazis deliberately starved to death millions of Russian POWs, saw them as racially inferior, 
Russians aren't, <laughs> they're neo-Nazis in Israel, for God's sake. Russian, Russia is not a country where there's sympathy to Nazism at any kind of remotely mainstream level. That's why Putin is using Nazism as the propaganda. But, but are they promoting it here? Maybe, but if they are, it's to um, undermine the United States, right? That's why. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, I, I think uh, it's fair to say that probably both the, the alt-right and the alt-left have received some some funding from Russia because they each and platforming is marquee, right? Yeah, and even in the old days, at the beginning of RP, you may recall they they always platform the Ron Paul movement. Yeah, I mean the idea that Russia is interested in anarcho capital is just so laughable. They they saw this as a strain that is against that is very morally opposed to U.S. foreign policy, right? Yeah. So that's why they were useful. It's not that the movement had no merit necessarily, but the, the, they were promoted because their interests coincide with Russia. And you, you saw that too with the alt-right and, 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 and the alt-left. But in terms of this guy, I think the NJP should answer the question, um, is this guy paying you and who is he, right? Because we know he at least asked oligarchs for money. Um, that is established fact. We don't know whether he received it. Again, if he has received it, it's they would not pay him because, oh, I'm so glad Hitler starved my grandfather to death because he thought he was subhuman. That's not why they pay it. They pay it because it's like, oh, good, you're going to undermine the United States. Here's some money. That's why they pay. So what's it like being back in the United States? Um, I am going to have to uh, run to the restroom for just... Yeah, 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 uh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I'll, yeah, I'll be yeah, right yeah. back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take, take a break. Uh, come on. Come on back. And uh, let me just play a little something here while we wait for you to come back here. I wonder what Tucker Carlson has to say. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, for decades and decades, the human rights campaign has been by far the most powerful gay rights lobby in Washington. You may have just heard of them recently, but they've been around for over 40 years. And for most of that time, HRC's central goal, and they said it many times, was winning the right of gay people to get legally married. And then in the summer of 2015, they finally succeeded. They reached their goal. The Supreme Court issued a decision in a case called Oberfeld versus Hodges. And overnight, all 50 states were required by law to recognize same-sex marriage. So for the human rights campaign, this should have been a moment of unbridled celebration, a dream come true. But it wasn't. It was a crisis. And if you don't understand why it was a crisis, then you don't live in Washington surrounded by nonprofits. So by this point, the human rights campaign had evolved from a scrappy little lobby into a prominent arm of the Democratic Party. It had a huge annual budget, an enormous headquarters building run on 17th Street downtown. So the human rights campaign may have outlived its reason for existing. On the other hand, it couldn't just disappear. There was a party to help, but there was a fundraising problem. Why would you give money to a group whose purpose has become obsolete? That was the dilemma. And they're not the first. The Women's Christian Temperance Union faced the same problem after Prohibition passed in 1919. And you don't hear a lot about the Women's Christian Temperance Union anymore. HRC desperately hoped to avoid that fate. And here's the point of the story. Amazingly, through clever rebranding, they did avoid that fate. So in 2014, just before gay marriage became law, HRC's annual budget was about $57 million. That's a lot. Listen to this. By 2021, last year, that same budget had expanded to $65 million. In other words, seven years after reaching its stated goal, its reason for existing, 
the human rights campaign was raising even more money, a lot more money. Let's get back. It's like, imagine how'd they do that? Well, they... Hmm. Okay, just swallowed some water. So what's it like being back in uh, the United States? Well, I'm currently in um, College Park in Maryland uh, for the National... to visit the National Archives for my doctoral thesis. It's one of the most charming aspects of being a doctoral student is the opportunities, you know, many funded to uh, travel to archives. And I have to admit, I'm very impressed by the University of Maryland campus. Um, I'm going to be here to uh, look at State Department records, uh, basically, you know, pre-CIA intelligence gathering of nas- about nationalistic movements during the Second World War. So Americans were collecting intelligence about um, nationalistic movements in North Africa and how they had been impacted by, by the shift from French um, rule, from Third Republican rule to Vichy fascist and Nazi, in the case of Tunisia, uh, rule. So I'm trying to see how this impacted nationalistic movements and the American uh, sources will hopefully be able to shed some light on that. In addition to, of course, um, uh, primary Arabic sources, which I've read already. But in terms of being back in the States, I have to say it feels somewhat different. Um, is the feeling different for you? Real, like like it, it feels a little less woke. Maybe that's because of the Ukraine thing. You, you have that feeling in the air? Yes, like, I noticed uh, distinctly fewer homeless people when I got back from two months in Australia in the middle of January. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you're, you're in California, right? Yes, wow. You're, Los in, Angeles. you're in the belly of the beast. Yeah. And there's like no, you have like no civil rights there if you disagree with the governor or anything, as I understand it. No, no. Life is fine. Life is good. I mean, it's got problems like everywhere, but no, it's not some totalitarian. I, I, I'm, I'm joking. Yeah. I'm exaggerating to make a point. Yeah. Of yeah. course, it's not totalitarian society. I mean, the, the situation in Russia does remind us that, yeah, we may be fired for having dissenting views. It's really the worst that is likely to happen. We're not going to go to jail, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it sucks to be fired. But even even there, you could work at a gas station, right? Yeah, I mean, there's never been a better time to look for a job. So you really can't can't be complaining now. This is a fantastic time to be, be out there looking for a job. And every, every moment in history, you've had to watch what you say. There's never been a time in history where you could just say anything you wanted to and not pay a mm-hmm. price for it. So if you recognize... True, but, but I would say the United States is much less liberal than it was uh, 15 years ago, let's say. Yeah, it's much less uh, classically liberal, but yeah. but, but still, uh, uh, people pining for, for free speech, they, they confuse that with no consequences for what I say, and there has never been a time in human history where there are no right. consequences for what you say. But the consequences that have attended just like the, the statement of banal truisms, that kind of does disturb me, right? That, that, it's always been that way. There's never been a time when what you and I would regard as banal truisms, that, that there's always been times when banal truisms would get you burned at the stake. True, but I feel like, you know, I, I play uh, poker from time to time and, and I feel like these woke people are basically saying that if I have a pair of kings and they have a pair of queens, and I say kings are better than queens, kings win the hand, um, that that I can't say that, you know? It's as if I'm playing poker and can't say, well, aces beat 
deuces, right? I mean, the level, so the level of, um, of absurdity you're required to affirm, this strikes me as very different than recent history, you know? I mean, is it any more absurd than the, the teachings of the major religions for someone who's got a, a non-religious perspective? No, I agree. They're not, they don't know more, but, um, you know, there isn't, there hasn't been, I think, the last few generations at least, been the level of pressure uh, to espouse these doctrines in the United States than there has been recently to espouse woke doctrine. Right. There are certain absurd things for which there's much more pressure to say now. But if I thought deeply about it, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 70 years ago, I'm sure there are all sorts of absurd things True. that you're expected to go along with as well. There's, I mean, many would say, many, I, I agree with this, um, even though I'll be called a shitlib by some. Many would say it's absurd that um, if you just were a man who wanted to have consensual sex with another man, like 70 years ago, like that you were treated as if you were some serious criminal, you know? Like, and again, like, let's just, the, the only thing this individual does, and I'm hypothesizing, is he wants to have sex with another man, a, a doll, consensually. Right. Like, and that treated like serious criminality uh, in the past, at least, not today, obviously. But yeah. But yeah, I, I just think relative to my childhood, I'm being made to affirm absurd propositions at a growing rate, and I'm, I'm disturbed by that. But I, I feel as if, if you to go back to the question, that the power of woke, woke tyranny, if you will, is weaker. I think the Ukraine thing has weakened it. Yes, I mean, uh, the president, Joe Biden, and Kamala Harris, they both took down their preferred pronouns from their Twitter bios. Yeah, I mean, that's – why would they do that other than the virtue signal? But the fact that they they did do it is disturbing because no, they're not clarifying that they're women. But Harris is not clarifying that she's female. Biden is not clarifying he's male. They're just showing – they're kind of bending the knee before this ideology, right? Right, but now they're unbending. Yeah, it is interesting. We're living in more serious times. I agree with you. It is interesting. So you turned me on to a, a great book by Richard Evans. I mm-hmm. I didn't realize he was such a great writer. I mean, he's just he is a great writer. I mean, I read him before. You probably just knew him from the Irving trial, but he's he's a great historian. He's a he's a great historian. And he's a great writer. I mean, this book is a terrific read in defense of history. It's a short little mm-hmm. read. It, it's great fun. It it just packs so much into it. And I'll just start with, with a, I just selected various paragraphs. I love this right. book. So tell me when this ceased to be true. Uh, virtually all historians assume that the nation state was the primary object of historical study. The emerging historical profession was dominated by the view that the historian's task lay principally in the study of the origins and development of states and in their relations with one another. When did that cease to be true? Um, well, I think that ceased to be true probably in the 20th century. In the 19th century, people believed that. Right. So yeah. maybe after, maybe the 1920s, is that when it started to cease to be true? Oh, well, it was certainly not, nobody would have thought in these terms by the 1950s or right. 40s. I think probably by the 20s and 30s, yeah. I think by the 20s and 30s. I think... Probably by the 20s, um, and again, I'm not an expert on this, on like the history of historiography, if you will, but um, I can certainly say by the 50s and 40s, nobody was thinking in these terms, very few at least, so we have fringe. I think probably by the 20s, I think probably, you know, I want to say that 
post World War One that the horrors of World War One probably caused a revision, a kind of moral questioning of this romanticizing of the nation state and ethno nationalism, if you will, that had been so paramount in historiography. I think that the British especially probably rejected this earlier, though, because of the the commitment the British had uh, beginning in the late 19th century, British scholarship, British philosophy to plain empiricism and banishing like sentimental ideologies, which would include obviously romantic, romantic ethno-nationalism. Now, when did history cease being a very significant tool to promote ethno-nationalism? So I assume, again, 1920s in the West, um, post-World War II in, in Germany. Is that, mm-hmm. is that fair? Yeah, of course. Of course, um, uh, you know, um, Germany, you still have, you know, you have this through through the Second World, and actually during the Weimar Republic years, you have this. I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to, yeah, a book uh, um, by Otto Brunner, uh, Land and Lordship, which I believe was, which was certainly published before, I'm not sure when in the Weimar years, I read this book in our master's um, program, but this is kind of, um, this book is kind of asserting that implicit um, in medieval institutions, in medieval Austrian institutions, was the contemporary um, um, nation state, was a contemporary German nation state. And this was a very uh, famous book, and I, I believe it was written in the 19, early 30s, before the Nazis came to power. But, um, you know, um, so states have a natural institution, it doesn't emerge, you know, there's no emergence moment that um, you know, this kind of scholarship is not going to be um, found in uh, Britain in the corresponding time or the United States, for example. In terms of the rhetorical use of history as a source of ethno-nationalism, I think you get that today in most countries um, outside the West, certainly probably almost all, right? You get that in Russia for sure. Right. And what does epistemology the, the study of how we know what we know, what does epistemology have to do with the profession of studying history? Well, I think the first epistemic challenge you have with history is um, to, is, is one of classification. Like what type of branch, is this a branch of knowledge? Is this a branch of humanism? Is this just literature um, as postmodernists suggest? And I think the answer Evans gives is quite centrist, as it were. Um, I think that he recognizes there is a, like he praises the value of craft and literature and history, right? And this is actually quite unique to history. The idea that to write in a vivid and compelling and humane style (laughs) makes one a good historian, you know, is widely held, even if historians don't live up to it very often. And no one holds that for writing up academic paper on chemistry, right? Yeah. So there are humanistic elements. It's a craft. Nevertheless, um, Evans wants to defend, I would want to defend, a scientific element to history as well, insofar as despite the power of narrative and rhetoric, there still is a, a veto power that the documents must have, right? Your narrative is going to shape your history. It's inevitable. Postmodernists are right about that. But 
there should your, the documents should at some point have a veto power over your narrative. Evans believes that, and I believe that as well. You see that in the case of <laughs> of David Irving, for example, with his hypothesis that Hitler is reaching out his hand to protect to protect the Jews. You know, there's just too many vetoes, as it were, of that view by the documents for it to be credible. Let me read a little bit here from Richard Evans. He said, already before 1914, the ability of the scientific method to deliver a neutral and value-free history was under doubt. Its credibility was even more severely shaken by the events of 1914 to 18 and their aftermath. Professional historians in every country rushed into print with elaborate defenses of the war aims of their own governments and denunciations of other great powers for having begun the conflict. Substantial collections of documents on the origins of the war were produced, though the usual scholarly paraphernalia and edited by reputable professionals, but on principles of selection that seem manifestly biased to colleagues in other countries. So the rigorous scientific training which they had undergone seemed to have had no effect at all in inculcating a properly neutral and objective attitude to the past, a view that was underlined as the 1920s progressed by the continuing violent controversies between extremely learned and scholarly historians about the origins of the war. Any thoughts? I think he's quite right, and I also think that the, the reaction to the First World War um, and historiography shows that the power of narrative, right? Because and, and and it presents a challenge to history because you have so many different accounts of who is responsible. Um, you have Fritz Fischer and the Fisherites, still kind of a, a very politically, if you will, uh, powerful normative faction. In Germany, saying no, Germany is to blame for the First World War. Germany must be because of the Zonderweg theory of history that the German state was inevitably leading to the crimes and aggressions of Nazism. Um, you have uh, Sean McMeekin with a, a more recent polemical treatment with some with some kernels of truth, I'd say, even though I'm not a fan of his work, uh, attributing um, the, um, the the war war guilt to Russia, um, to the Russian Empire. Um, you have, um, um, you have Christopher Clark's, uh, recent book saying sleepwalkers, like broadly attributing blame. So you don't have, uh, excellent book, by the way, by Christopher Clark, uh, called Sleepwalkers, um, about the origins of the F first world war. So, um, it does seem to uh, illustrate the power of narratives and call into question, the role of documents and such a seminal event with so much at data that we can't come to any kind of consensus. Although I think there are some consensus is that Britain and France were not the primary guilty parties. Maybe it was Germany, maybe it was Russia as well, maybe it was Serbia as well. Um, but even here, there are some limits, right? So I think um, the, the record of historiography shows that Consensus is often hard, and narrative is so powerful. Politics is so powerful. But nevertheless, um, documents do should and do have a sort of veto over historians. Now, can that veto overpower politics? Not always. But if the data is compelling enough, it often can. And um, I think the historiographical record shows that. I mean, look at the Second World War. There isn't really dissent. On, there isn't significant dissent, although you had Sean McMeekin, the guy I just mentioned, he blames the USSR for the Second World War, a very absurd book, and Savorov, 
um, the icebreaker hypothesis. But um, which it was that uh, Putin was just itching to invade all of Europe. Stalin was, yeah. I mean, I mean Stalin, it, yeah. It's, yeah, it's uh, a very bad book. Um, I mean, the the Germans, their documents of Hitler. First of all, it goes back to Mein Kampf and Zweites book, his craving for Lebensraum. There's zero evidence, like I mean, zero, of the general staff of the Wehrmacht and Hitler believing that the Russians are about to imminently invade. May have said that publicly, but no private statements. And in 1940, a year before Barbarossa, he's already asking his generals to draw plans to invade Russia. So it's a silly thesis. Um, I think that shows that there, you know, there there is a sense in which the documents can overcome prejudices. And I think conscientious historians have that. Now, in cases where the evidence is rather ambiguous, I think narrative does overpower um, evidence. I do. And, and like, I think Evans is right. Like, the evidence matters, but narrative matters too. The challenges of postmodernists cannot be glibly dismissed. We can't go back to <laughs> Leopold von Ranke, who Evans mentions a lot in this book. He's kind of the founder of the modern historical method, which, which places so much emphasis on documentary evidence and the authentication of documents, you know, and the providence and the context, like Rockean methodology is still roughly what historians do, right? But uh, we certainly reject Ranka's certitude, if you will, about uh, the value of historical methods, right? We know narrative matters too, tremendously. And, and narrative... Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to read a little bit more from uh, Richard Evans. Oh, yeah, please. Uh, Most historians have always believed the establishment of general laws to be alien to the enterprise in which they are engaged. This clearly differentiates them sharply from natural scientists. So occasionally you run into historians who try to establish general laws of, of history and how people operate, but that tends to, to be inimical in general to the profession of historian. Yeah, um, it's a very fringe view that they're like the Hegelian view of history is is rather fringe. I think Ranka is sometimes who did believe in these universal laws and who Evans mentions. I think Ranka and I think Evans has a kind of charitable and accurate understanding of Ranka. Ranka wasn't saying that there are universal laws that apply to each epoch of history. He basically is saying that there are there's a, a zeitgeist, there's a spirit of the times, right? There are what we call universal principles or tendencies relative to a time and a place. So abstraction shouldn't dignify necessarily with the term law, but abstractions like this is the age of X, Y, Z can be useful, analytically useful, but they have to be provisional and local. They can't be universal, right? But you could say this age was tending toward that value. This age was tending toward liberalism, right? Or industrialization. I think... I think Ranka's often kind of straw man, if you will. And I, I think that, um, but laws is, are much too strong. Yeah, he's correct. Law is much too strong of a term. Although I think telos, you could apply a kind of reformed Hegelianism in a local um, time, space limited sense, and it can be useful in this way. But in terms of universal laws, I think hardly no one believes that. Yeah. If anyone. Yeah, here's a little bit more from Richard Evans. Uh, Nor does history enable one to predict revolutions. Historians notoriously fail to predict, for example, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. In any case, 
uh, history's role was to understand the past. Very few historians have uh, shared this idea that you can then shape and, and predict the future through, through the study of history. You can't really mm-hmm. use the past as a basis for concrete predictions. You don't find historians making many predictions. Right, which differentiates history from, you know, many sciences where the deductive method is, in science, is core, a core application of it is being able to predict future events, right? So much of accuracy in history. History can't do it, although I think history does impart a certain wisdom. I think, and I think here's what I'd say, and I can't quantify this. I think Evans agrees with this, from what he says in the book, that knowledge of history can give someone a kind of prudential judgment that can lead to predictions of what is possible, you know? I think likely is too strong, but what is possible, I think, is, is a good thing to say. Like, yeah. like a historian, he, he, the term he uses is warnings. Historians can give warnings under X conditions Y can happen. I think that's probably a sufficiently humble term. But I, I do think knowledge of the past does give insight to the future. I think that's true. I think human events are so complicated that the knowledge is crude and limited. But I, I want to think there is some practical, um, practical ability um, for history to predict the future. Although that's questionable. Where history is most valuable is actually understanding the present, right? Um, understanding the present, it's highly useful. If you're trying to understand, you know, why Russians, why Russians don't like Nazis, um, mm-hmm. that's something you look at it with history, like the genocidal policies the Nazis had against the Russians in the Second World War. Um, so I think understanding history helps us understand the present. But to predict the future, it's, a, it's dubious. But I think... I think it gives insights, but I can't be sure, and I can't quantify that either. And so social scientists, generally speaking, they, they or frequently they form hypotheses, and mm-hmm. if, if the hypothesis is useful, it has explanatory and, and predictive power, for example. Mm-hmm. So Kevin McDonald said about his own hypotheses about the Jews that didn't really have uh, predictive power, which, which it didn't. It didn't. His his uh, cultural critique analysis didn't have either predictive or analytical power, but for example, much of the international relations theory propounded by John Mearsheimer is incredibly useful for understanding uh, events going on around us and also understanding what's what's coming down the pike. But the fact is that while a chemist knows in advance the result of mixing two elements in a crucible, the historian has no such advanced knowledge of anything, and he's not really trying to gain such knowledge. It's not central to the no business. i mean the the aim of it and i don't think evans ever makes this point what is the aim of history he's talking about it looks kind of like epistemology of history but the aim of history in my view is artistic the methods are both artistic and scientific right so the method like observation um, um source criticism you can even look at videos and so on you, you, you there's a, the method is empirical and artistic and humanistic. The aim is is mostly artistic, I think. That there's some kind of aesthetic value and humanistic value in understanding what happened to prior and telling the stories of prior generations of human beings. On the other hand, I think, as I say, um, knowledge of history can provide us lots of insight for what's going on in the world today. Because narratives about history and uh, history itself do affect the present world quite profoundly. 
So I remember. Then, go ahead. I remember in 1988 where I was heading off to UCLA and there was this book that was just widely, widely discussed and it was all over the newspapers and the magazines. It was called The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers by Yale historian Paul Kennedy. And this was a profoundly researched, carefully argued study of uh, the great powers over the past 500 years. It argued there was a pattern in modern history according to which wealthy states created empires but then eventually overstretched their resources and declined. And the book had a wealth of historical detail, but it attracted attention not because of its learned demonstrations for the reasons for the failure of the Habsburg Empire to achieve European domination in the 16th and century, 17th centuries, but because of its conclusion that the United States would be unable to sustain its global hegemony far into the 21st century. So this is 1988, time when U.S. President Ronald Reagan was about to ride off into the sunset. So this gloomy prophecy struck a deep vein of anxiety in the American people. And the book became a bestseller overnight. So it was written in 1987. The book also made the point of arguing the Soviet Union was not close to collapse and that uh, Japan was, was on, on, on a trajectory to overtake the United States as the most powerful uh, nation in the world. So within a few years, all of his prophecies were completely confounded. The Soviet Union had collapsed not in the international war, which uh, Kennedy had argued was the inevitable trigger for such processes, but because of internal disintegration, the world hegemony of the United States was more assured than ever in the economic boom of the 1990s. The U.S. showed a few signs of suffering from the imperial overstretch, which Paul Kennedy had prophesied. So in the first seven chapters of his book, this historian writing his historian produced, you know, interesting, instructive, workable generalizations about the rise and fall of international superpowers and the relationship of economic and military strength. So if, if Kennedy had stopped there, his book would not have attracted the attention it did and it would not have sold so many copies, but it would have been good history. As soon as he turned his generalizations into laws and used them to prophesy the future, he ran into trouble. Any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, look, what I, again, what I think, <laughs> uh, look, what Kennedy did is <laughs> he, essentially was operating in the vein this in this uh, rather odd book was operating as a 19th century historian right yeah. he was he was operating deductively right he was deducing these grand abstract historical laws and deductively applying them to uh, contemporary <laughs> contemporary uh, nation states and making sweeping predictions about them and he looks quite silly in retrospect the um i just think he is overstating the predictive power of history and greatly exaggerating it um the the, the this predictive power i think it's some enhancement if you will of, of one's predictive powers as i said through knowledge of history but this must be presented in a tepid way in an equivocal way in a bashful way and um that's not what kennedy did in his book certainly now this is also uh... A, a rule for life much of what will get you success and attention is not mm -hmm. true and not valid and not good <laughs> so this oh. this dilemma of you know saying things that are nonsensical uh well will often bring you attention and and an audience and more income yeah, grand thesis. i mean like you mentioned mcdonald no one would know who mcdonald was if he uh had hadn't written about such a provocative topic right, right. he makes a living off of 
Jew theories, I suppose, right? Right. So, I mean, as, as a live streamer, you know, I love having 1,000 live viewers. Like, I've had that, and it's mm -hmm. absolutely intoxicating. It's fun. I love, love making money from doing this. But I don't get 1,000 live viewers having this sort of discussion. I get 1,000 mm -hmm. live viewers having, you know. Yeah, Kevin, if, you, if you're talking about McDonald's nonsense, you get yeah. far more. Yeah. If, if, you, and if you just, if you, and more still if you pretend to believe in it. Yeah. 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 I mean, the the type of material that attracts a, a large audience to a live stream is not usually based on the, the quality of the show. It's simple and far reaching. I think I think the best uh, what appeals to people is something simple, but that has far reaching implications. And McDonald is a is an example of that. So the Jew thing is absurd but simple. And it has far-reaching implications. It explains the demise of Western civilization history, right? It explains the social acceptance of homosexuality of liberal immigration policy. So, right. yeah, I mean, and it, it doesn't have all of these qualifications and reservations and um, insecurities, you know. And... Uh... Richard Evans quotes three American historians saying, history is much more than a branch of letters to be judged only in terms of its literary merit. I think that's a good point. I agree with that. Um, the um, accuracy of historical, um, of historical arguments matters as well, the plausibility of them, and um, the ability of the, and conscientiousness of the historian matters insofar as he, um, is uh, abiding by um, the field standards of source criticism and the usage of sources. That, for example, David Irving, he writes in a very vivid, compelling fashion. He's a great writer, actually. Um, he doesn't abide by these norms. So he, he writes exciting books, but he doesn't write, um, at least as far as Hitler's concerned, he doesn't write good history, you know, or Holocaust's concerned. He doesn't write good history because it's it doesn't abide by um, the well-defined, fairly well-defined standards of document review in the discipline. McMeekin isn't good either, the guy I mentioned earlier. He cites a, I mean, for example, if, you, if, you're, if you're basing a claim on only one stray source that doesn't have echoes and other sources, one primary source, that's not good history, right? That doesn't, that violates the objective, if you will, methodology. If you base, um, um, your um, argument on a linguistically improbable mis uh, misreading of a source, that's bad history. If you base your argument on a source that doesn't have any original, McMika does this in his book, Stalin's War, by the way, in trying to argue that um, uh, Stalin was planning to attack Germany, he bases the claim on a source that has no original copy. He just finds a, a, a alleged uh, description of this speech in a French newspaper but there's no original speech or discussion of this original speech in, this, in these terms and so on. So yeah, there are objective standards of the field and that differentiates it from literature, right? Yeah. Here's more from Richard Evans. He notes, few historians write competently, few still display any real mastery of the language in which they publish their work. So it's such a delight when you encounter the, the historian who, who writes well, but it's by no means the dominant thing in the profession. No, certainly not the norm. And it's gotten worse over time. If you read, if you read these 19th century guys, 
um, you know, the writing quality is much higher, unfortunately. Like, we may scoff at their lack of empirical rigor, at their belief in teleology, at their nationalistic romanticism, but the caliber of their prose is just so much better than what you get today. Unfortunately, you're getting a very jargon-laden, um, uh, kind of dummy-like prose in so many modern history books. These kind of old school, like if and it's also a recent change. If you read a book by like Hugh Trevor Roper, for example, who is a famous historian who was did lose credibility over the Hitler Diaries incident, but you know, famous historian um, who uh, you know was widely read in the. 40s, 50s, 60s, the quality of prose is just so much better. If you read like Hitler's Last Days by Trevor Roper, just just much better writing than the stuff that gets published today. You know. What, what can we learn from the Hitler Diaries in, uh, fiasco? We, we had, uh, I think, the Times of London and Newsweek, you know, paid, paid this forger uh, enormous sums of money to, to publish the, the purported Hitler Diaries, and, and David Irving initially signed on with the Hitler Diaries, and then he was among the first to denounce them as, as fraudulent. He initially, he initially, he was one of the first to denounce them as fraudulent, and he actually did it for good reason, because he, Irving had, he's kind of obsessed with Hitler, he has like a personal obsession with Hitler, yeah. and he had in his house, like, uh, it's bizarre, but it's actually, it's actually what a historian should do at some level, right? Um, a he had a, like a calendar of like all the days during World War II and what Hitler's schedule was. He like had this in his house, right? So he, and this was based on primary source dark. And so he, the reason he knew the diaries were fake, and I'll get to the story which discredits Irving, unfortunately for him. But um, uh, the reason he knew the diaries were fake was because there were many accounts in this diary that didn't match what he knew from primary sources, what Hitler's actual schedule was. But then Irving realized, I think this is speculation, but that the diaries didn't mention the extermination of the Jews. So then he got like, oh, I should, I should pretend these are real. That's what I speculate. Because I don't know why he would have changed his mind when this argument remained, right? That there are many contradictions in Hitler's, what Hitler was doing in the real world based on the sources and what Hitler said he was doing in these fake diaries. And, and it, as, as Evan says, I mean, it was kind of embarrassing uh, for Trevor Roper because simply you just tested the paper, right? And and that discredited these diaries. Um, right. right, the paper didn't come out till the 1950s. Right. Yes. There's a little bit more from uh, Richard Evans. He says most history books are hopelessly unreadable, and for this situation, the dominance in the past 30 years of social science models bears a lot of responsibility. Do you want to talk about that, the increasing dominance of social science on the field of history? Sure, I will. I just I want to put a button on the Hitler diary thing first. Yeah. Irving, Irving actually could have really had a PR coup for himself if he had just stuck by his guns, which were based on the sources. But he he was defending the diaries after the after people were saying they're fake because he wanted them to be true because there was no mention of the Holocaust in there, the, the, the extermination of the Jews. So despite the that he was the first kind of well-known persona to say these are fake and here's why he was also uh the last or one of the last to defend their authenticity and when he that when he whenever he talks about this he never mentions the fact that he was defending their authenticity after mainstream historians were not which is yeah. kind of rather humorous really yeah um, in terms, yeah so 
I think these methods are highly useful, but can sometimes detract from the craft of history, from just um, document the, the core methods of document of documentary criticism, of going to the archives, of finding a wealth of documents, and also of writing clearly and vividly. Frankly, I find that. Uh, um, <laughs> These are some of the most, uh, without <laughs> name authors in particular, but these are, I have a couple in mind, but, you know, they're alive and maybe I'll want to, you know, a recommendation from, um, or, you know, job, their faculty at one day. But I find that these are often some of the most boring books to read. And one of the reasons I like history and got into history is the literary quality of the best historians. So I think these are highly useful methods, but we have to make sure as historians that we're not abandoning the core principles of our craft while we embrace tools of social science, like econometrics, for example. Uh, I think Evans mentions one book in particular that tried to show through econometrics that um, uh, something about slavery was, yes. was highly productive or something yes. like that. Uh, yeah, it, the slaves were, were quite Yeah, the lost. slaves were benefited, benefited yeah. from, from slavery. And I, I just slaves. think... Yeah, I just think that you've... Evans ridicules, Evans is not like politically correct or anything, but he ridicules this and I think rightfully so. First of all, this isn't the job of the historian to make a judgment like this. And um, it's a kind of a polemical political judgment. And uh, second of all, you're just invoking all kinds of neoliberal economic criteria to make this rather vulgar judgment that um, really shouldn't be in the province of history. So I think this was rightly rightly mocked um uh, the book he references about trying to that that purports to demonstrate that the that slavery increases the well-being of increased the well-being of the slaves in the american context and uh, richard evans writes history in the end may for the most part be seen as a science in the weak sense of the german term wissenschaft an organized body mm -hmm. of knowledge acquired through research carried out according to generally agreed methods presented in published reports and subject to peer review. It's not a science in the strong sense that it can frame general laws or predict the future, but there are sciences such as geology, which cannot predict the future. Either. Right. Right. And he also mentions that if, if you want to um, talk about, well, history is a science because it can't, there's no controlled experiments. Well, there isn't in astronomy either. You know, he mentions, he mentions that I think in the book, that example specifically, I agree with that. Um, I think, and as I'd say, though, it's a, it's a, it is a science infused with humanism, and the motive for it should properly be artistic and humanistic, in my view. Um, and I think one, one very interesting illustration of that is how good history is well-read. Even bad writers will admit this. And that doesn't make sense in the context of other sciences, right? You wouldn't say, oh, um, you know, um, Einstein's theory of relativity is is bad because he didn't expound it in the most eloquent way. You don't right. say that, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, Richard Evans makes the point that language and grammar are not completely arbitrary signifiers. They have evolved through contact with the real world in an attempt to name real things. So historical discourse has also evolved through contact with the real historical world in an attempt to reconstruct it. Language is not, in the end, purely self-reflective. Experience tells us that it mediates between human consciousness and the world it occupies. 
What do you yeah, think? I, I, I certainly agree with that. Now we're getting very much into the weeds of philosophy of language, uh, you know, metaphysics, really, right? Because you're like, to what extent is <laughs> what we intersubjectively use uh, these symbols and metaphors, language or whatever, that we intersubjectively use to signify real world phenomena. To what extent does that reflect the, the phenomena in itself, the real world in itself? It's like Kant, I don't know if you've read Critique of Pure Reason, but Kant's differentiation between phenomena and noumena. Noumena being like the things in themselves, the things in the world in themselves. Like that football field I'm looking at right now, University of Maryland, that in itself versus my perception of it. And then it's filtered through language and so forth. But yeah, I certainly think that um, a kind of qualified realism in this domain is what is kind of a default assumption of most people in the real world, right? And also, and also a sense that the that language is signifying the things in themselves to some extent. So to some yeah. extent, here, yeah, go ahead. Oh, so philosophical realism in the way you're using it now means that the the things that we see do correspond generally speaking, to something that is real. It's not just our perceptions. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of take Kant's view that we can never know the things in themselves because they're always filtered through our particular biology and cognition. Um, the view Kant expresses a critique of your reason. But nevertheless, the phenomena are not arbitrary, right? Like the phenomena of walking out the window without any technology or whatever will be me falling to determine myself, right? Or dying. You know, that's not arbitrary, right? So there's something, there's some causal chain here, even if they're also, it's also filtered through the prism of my senses. Um, so I don't take a, 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 a relativistic view of, of uh, metaphysics. And I think most people don't intuitively. And if you don't, then I think there's something to language, right? So I think the hardcore postmodernist argument's pretty bad, honestly. I think kind of softcore postmodernist arguments are interesting, and Evans agrees with that. Like, the power of narrative is something that Foucault and others do have a point about, frankly. I mean, narrative is tremendously important in filtering uh, how we see the world, right? So how dominant are postmodernists in the history profession these days? There's a lot of them, but I think, here's what I think. A lot of them, um, so it's, they're hypocrites. So a lot of people will say, I had a professor, actually I have a great deal of respect for her. She's very intelligent. She wrote one of my letters. She's now at Oxford um, for, for my PhD. Um, application. She said, she basically expressed a postmodern view at one point in class. But then if you were to tell her that the Holocaust is fake, she would say that's vulgar and stupid, right? So I feel like there, or that slavery didn't occur or whatever. So I feel like people aren't really postmodernists. They, they use the rhetoric, but they don't, you know, they, they don't really, they contradict themselves, right? They do act as if there are some things that we know to be true. And you have this strange kind of merger, this awkward merger in the academy with like highly moralistic rhetoric on race and colonialism and whatever, along with postmodernism, which is strange because postmodernism would say this is just um, objection to racism or colonialism or whatever is just a, a discourse and is as good or bad as any other moral discourse. 
yeah, they don't act like that. They act like it's a, this is the truth, right? The moral truth. Yeah, pe people can't um, live without belief in objective good and evil. Right. No matter how much I, I think I think it. that they're not they're not really postmodernists. Is my is my answer? They they say they are, but they are. But a lot of people say they are. They give lip service to it. By the way, they don't they don't say their methodologies are postmodern. They accept that their methodologies are Rankian, right? They're like that the that in, in a broad sense, Western historians use and frankly Eastern historians use the same methods of um documents having a high uh eminence and criticism of documents and providence and so on. They're similar methods, right? But they would say, Oh, this is I'm using this method, but it's just arbitrary, you know. I'm using this method because of social convention, right? That's what they'd say. But th th they contradict themselves. So I think they, they say they are, but they aren't. I think strong postmodernism is very silly and easily discredited. I think the more serious claim is a kind of wired-down postmodernism, which I think actually has to be taken into account as partially true. And I think Evans agrees with that. Like, earlier historians, their, pre their pretense to scientific objectivity was gravely exaggerated and even looks rather silly in retrospect. And to this extent, consciousness of, as I say, the power of narrative, the stuff that, the power of language, stuff that Foucault talks about and others um, is valuable, I think. But I think in the strongest form, postmodernism is pretty easily discredited. Okay, I think I might want to wrap things up there. We've got a lot more to talk about on another show, but uh, for this evening, do you have any final words? I do not. How have you been lately, Luke? I'm just asking you personally. I've been well. I've been very well, but uh, I'm going to end the show and then I'll, I'll chat with okay. you a little bit after the end of the show. Okay, everyone. Let me see if I can find the button. Uh-oh. Okay. Oh, there we go. Right, there we go.